0: This is the BBC.
1: This podcast is supported by advertising outside the UK.
2: Hol dir jetzt das gratis Mac-Menü Upgrade in der McDonald's App und mach aus deinem Big Mac einen Double Big Mac oder Big Mac Bacon TS. Nur für registrierte App-User in teilnehmenden Restaurants, nicht zum Mac-Menü Small.
1: Gegenseitiger Respekt ist die Basis für ein gutes Gespräch. Im Netz ist das alles andere als selbstverständlich. Und woher zur Hölle
3: willst du das wissen? So eine vorlaute Bitch wie dich sollte mal an den Herd fesseln, dir dein Handy wegnehmen und... Und wir feiern
1: dich dafür, dass du dich als Frau nicht unterkriegen lässt. Keine Angst, du bist hier nicht allein. Wir alle entscheiden, ob wir das Netz dem Hass überlassen. Werde Teil der Telekom-Initiative gegen Hass im Netz und setze ein Zeichen. Telekom.
0: BBC Sounds. Music, radio, podcasts. In Our Time is on its annual break and we'll be back on BBC Radio 4 and BBC Sounds on the 14th of September. Until then, each week, we're offering an episode from our archive of nearly 1,000 programmes, which I hope you'll enjoy. Have a good summer. Hello. Before the rise of the dinosaurs, the dominant land animals were crocs, the academic catch all name for ancestors of the alligators and crocodiles that lurk by the water's edge today among the reeds. That was truly the age of the croc. They were once crocs as large as T-Rex, some 10 metres long, some running upright on two legs, some with hooves, some in the oceans as big as a whale. And their prominence was long overlooked by those who treated crocodiles on Earth now as living fossils, less intriguing than dinosaurs with little left to reveal. With me to discuss the evolution of crocodiles are Anjali Goswami, research leader in life sciences and dean of postgraduate education at the Natural History Museum, Philip Mannion, lecturer in the Department of Earth Sciences at University College London, and Steve Brasati, professor of paleontology and evolution at the University of Edinburgh. Steve Brasati, we've used the word croc, rather jaunty word here. That hints at a wider group. What does it cover?
2: Well, we'll have to start out with a bit of terminology, and I don't like spending too much time on jargon, but we're going to be talking here today about... 250 million years of evolution and a huge diversity of species. So, to set the stage, today we have crocodiles, you know, the Nile crocodiles, for example. Uh, And along with alligators and another group called the gharials, these are ones with really long snouts, these are the only living crocodilians. There's just about 25 species today spread around the, the tropics and the subtropics. Uh, But the crocodilians have a lot of extinct cousins. And around 250 million years ago, the reptile family tree split into two groups. There was crocs on one side, and then dinosaurs and birds and pterodactyls on the other. And technically, that croc group is called the pseudosuchia. But to me, that's really an unwieldy tongue twister name. It does not suit well for crisply pronouncing here on the radio. So I'll just use the informal term croc to cover that entire group on the family tree. And again, that's everything more closely related to today's crocodiles than to dinosaurs, birds, pterodactyls, snakes, lizards. Any other reptiles. And the important thing for us is that there was an enormous diversity of these croc species during prehistory. What do you mean by prehistory? Well, I'm going back to the Triassic period, and that's about 250 million years ago. And then the Triassic was followed by the Jurassic and the Cretaceous. That's what we often talk about as the age of dinosaurs before the present day. But as we'll see, uh, quite a lot of that time at the beginning in the Triassic period was really the age of Crocs.
0: So they were at their, could we say they were at their peak then? I think so. So what did the peak look like?
2: They were at their peak then, really, because there were uh, many species living all over the world doing a whole bunch of different things in terms of their diets and behaviors. And so in the Triassic period, this was the span from about 250 to 200 million years ago, it was the crocs, much more than the dinosaurs, that were dominant on the land. Really, the dinosaurs were... The the supporting actors at that time, and it was a croc drama that was playing out on the supercontinent of Pangaea. This was the time when all of the world was gathered together at once, and these Triassic crocs really make a, a, a mockery of the few, the pittance of crocs that are still around today. Today's crocs are all really similar. You know, let's face it: a crocodile, an alligator, a gharial; these are all subtropical or tropical animals. They're basically semi-aquatic. They move a bit between water and land. They're predators but in the Triassic there was so much more there were crocs that were nearly the length of buses there were crocs that were at the top of the food chain but in a different way than today these crocs back then had heads that were nearly the sizes of bathtubs and filled with steak knife teeth almost like mini t-rexes but there were other crocs that were covered in spikes and horns others ate plants some even ate insects probably uh, some had cells on their backs Some lost all of their teeth and had beaks, if you can imagine that, a croc with a a head that kind of looked like a turtle. And some of them even sprinted on their hind legs. They walked upright on two legs, kind of like we do. And they together, during the Triassic period, these crocs, they were the dominant animals much more than dinosaurs. And by that, what I mean is there were more croc species, they lived in more places, They had a greater variety of diets and behaviors and lifestyles, and really they were keeping the first dinosaurs in check for several tens of millions of years across the entire Triassic period until about 200 million years ago when the Triassic period ended.
0: What did they prey on? What, What was their food?
2: They ate a variety of different things. Some of them would have looked and behaved like some of the crocs that live today. And they would have lived in and near the water. They would have eaten fish. They would have eaten small prey. Some were the top predators on land. They were filling those niches that were later filled by big, scary, meat-eating dinosaurs like T-Rex. They didn't quite get to the size of T-Rex, but there were things that looked kind of like mini T-Rexes, and they were crocs. And then there were these ones that uh, ate plants. They had teeth, kind of like mortar and pestle type teeth, for eating plants, grinding up plants. And then these ones with beaks, I don't really know what these were eating, but they probably were were eating things maybe similar to uh, turtles and other animals that have beaks today, whether that's insects or whether it's small prey. What's important really is that diversity of diets was so much greater than what we see crocs doing
0: today. Thank you very much, Phil. Phil Mannion, what was this world like in the age Steve's just described, the Triassic? Can you give us a picture of it, please?
3: So, as Steve mentioned, this was a time when crocs in particular were doing very well. This is 250 million years ago? Yes. So this is the period from then till, as Steve said, about 200 million years ago. And at this time, the world was very different to the world we see today. So all the continents were connected. Um, so there was the continent Pangaea, and the conditions were very different to the present day. So this was a much hotter world, uh, and there was probably sort of large deserts going through parts of the middle parts of this continent.
0: When you talk about deserts, like, we don't associate cro- crocs with deserts, do we? we? associate them with water and swamps and that sort of thing. So how did they uh, get on in deserts? In the past, crocs had... As Steve alluded to, lots of different shapes and sizes, but
3: they also inhabited lots of different ecologies, lots of different habitats. So actually many of the animals that we see uh, throughout the history of crocs really are doing quite different things for their present-day representatives. So these are animals that potentially have a far less ties to living in fluvial or estuarine environments. These are animals that are actually much more able to live in perhaps semi-arid environments.
0: There existed, as I understand it, about the same time as the dinosaurs. Is that right? And if so, what was the relationship between the two?
3: Uh, they both appeared around the same time. There was overlap in some environments. But at the time, most of the dinosaurs were much smaller than what we probably think of when we think of dinosaurs in general. We, we lack the really sort of giant dinosaurs that we really sort of think of When people think of things like Jurassic Park, they think of giant sauropods or things like T-Rex or velociraptors. Most of the dinosaurs at the time are much, much smaller. So they were probably living in similar environments, but there's a good chance that some of the uh, food chains were perhaps in the opposite direction that we think of today. Perhaps some of these crocs were actually feeding on some of these dinosaurs.
0: What brought the Triassic period to an end? What made the world less hospitable for so many animals? At the end of the Triassic period, so this is what we call the Triassic-Jurassic boundary. About when? 200 million?
3: Yeah, 200 million or 201 to be uh, precise. So (laughs) (laughs) uh, what's a million years? Uh, The Triassic-Jurassic mass extinction is perhaps one of the slightly less well understood of the big five mass extinctions that happened across the last uh, 500 million years. So this one didn't really affect the dinosaurs so much, but did actually affect a large amount of the crocs that Steve's been talking about. So many of those kind of weird and wonderful animals actually disappeared.
0: Why did it affect them and not the dinosaurs? What was going on there?
3: Well, we're still trying to understand what the differences differences were between these different groups. So it's possible that actually some aspects relating to the body size of these animals. So generally in mass extinctions, we see that smaller animals tend to sort of do quite well. But... In a large part, we're not really too sure why some groups, some close related animals go extinct and other ones survive. But in general terms, having sort of a broad distribution, having quite a generalist diet, seem to be kind of features that support or make it more likely that a species might survive.
0: Do we know what caused that mass extinction? This
3: relates primarily to the opening of what we now see today as the Atlantic Ocean. The western and eastern parts of Pangaea are essentially pulling apart from one another and starting to form what we describe as a proto-Atlantic ocean. This releases huge amounts of lava, uh, but importantly, it releases lots of gases, things like CO2 uh, and
0: methane as well. Thank you. Angelique Goswami, if you were to look at a fossil, how do you know it was a croc and not a dinosaur or something else?
4: Yeah, that's a good question. Um, And so in a perfect world, I would just list off for you some characteristics that you could easily identify in either of these two groups that you could say this is definitely a croc or this is definitely a dinosaur. But There's a couple of things that make it a lot more tricky. And uh, the first one is that fossils are not perfect. You know, we'd like to think that when we go out and dig up fossils, we find complete skeletons and we can understand exactly what these animals looked like when they were alive. In fact, what we usually find is just one little piece, a broken skull bone, usually just a tooth, maybe a little bit of the post-cranial skeleton, you know, a piece of the foot bone or something like that. With Crocs, actually, we very often just find a piece of the dermal armor. Now, that's actually a pretty good diagnostic one, the dermal armor. Um, But so one part of the reason why it's tricky to know is because we very, very rarely find complete skeletons. So we just find little pieces. The other reason it's tricky is because in order to think about what a Triassic crocodile looks like, you basically have to forget everything you know about crocodiles now. Because Triassic crocodiles, as as Steve and Phil were, were discussing don't look anything like crocodiles today. Some of the earliest forms actually appear to be bipedal, running around on two feet. They were uh, really narrow-bodied um, they had long back legs and short front legs. They um, looked like they were actually built for speed on land, some of them. Um, their teeth, you know, if you think about crock teeth today, or certainly kind of any time you'd pick up a crock tooth from the Cretaceous now, it's kind of this kind of standard conical, you know, kind of um, cone-shaped thing with some striations, pretty easy to, to pick up and identify. But actually, in those early groups, you know, along with that ecological diversity that Steve and Phil were mentioning, there's a huge diversity in things like teeth and the other structures of, of the skeleton. But so if you do uh, happen to find a really perfect skeleton, and, and there are some around, um, there are aspects of the ankle skeleton that people point to for identifying which kind of line they're on, whether the crock or the, or the dinosaur line. There's various aspects um, of the skull. Um, there's aspects of the way the jaw is structured. Um, those are some of the things. And, and again, the dermal, um, those, that dermal armor, the scutes, um, are, are another key aspect of that. And so there's, you know, in that early part of the Triassic where both of these lineages or both of these groups are really taking off, there's a huge amount of innovation in their body forms and in their skeletons. And that makes, whenever you have these kind of bursts of innovation, it can make it really hard to tease, tease out, um, you know, what different groups are actually, how they're, dif- how they're related to each other. Is that,
0: why, is that why fossils, skull fossils, are so valuable?
4: You know, that's... A very good reason why skull fossils are so valuable, you know just the different bones in the skull, the different um, uh, holes in the skull or foramen um, in the skulls can be really really diagnostic for the different groups. Unfortunately, finding a complete skull is is quite rare, um, extremely rare, but when you do find them, you can not only do a much better job of assigning your um, animal to one of these groups but you can also get a ton of information about what that animal actually did when it was alive, and that 's because the skull is in many ways, you know, the center of a function for an organism. It's it's where they um, where they process their food. So their teeth will give you lots of information about what they're eating. For most organisms, it's also how they're actually catching their food. So it tells you a lot about how they're what kind of environment they're moving around in and how they're catching their food. It holds most of the sensory organs, right? So it holds you know, your eyes and, and your ears and, and your nose. And so you can look at how it was actually moving around its environment, how it was sensing its prey. Obviously, it contains the brain. And so you can look at the size of the brain case and the different parts of the brain. And, and that, again, tells you a lot about how it was existing in its environment, how it was processing lots of different sensory information. Thank you. Steve,
0: Steve Brissati, how did the crocs respond to the new world of the Jurassic after so many had disappeared? What were they left without? Well, first
2: of all, they survived, uh, and that was the most important thing. They got through that extinction, and as Phil Described, you know, the world ripped apart. Pangaea split apart. You had these big volcanoes erupting, all kinds of toxic gases, global warming. I mean, this was a real apocalyptic period of time. It was a few hundred thousand years, most likely, of of these eruptions, um, and that was one of the worst mass die-offs ever. And crocs almost went extinct. They almost were a complete fatality of that event, but they did make it through. Not a lot of them, it seems like, but at least a few groups of the Crocs made it through. And then once they were on the other side in the Jurassic period, the next interval of time, they diversified again. They basically were Lazarus. (laughs) They, They rose from the dead. Uh, but now the world was different. You know, not only was the supercontinent breaking apart, but the world was now full of dinosaurs. The dinosaurs were the great survivors of that extinction. Uh, as, as Phil said, we don't really know why that was that to me, it's one of the biggest mysteries of dinosaur paleontology, but you know, paleontology in general, why did the dinosaurs survive? Especially because as Angeli was saying, a lot of these early crocs and early dinosaurs were quite similar to each other. But regardless of the answer, and I'm sure some very bright, very keen young scientists will figure it out, what we do know is we're now in the Jurassic... Uh, there's a reason that it's called Jurassic Park, not Triassic Park. If it was Triassic Park, it would be a book and a film about a bunch of crocs, and actually that would be pretty pretty awesome, I think, because as we're seeing these crocs were incredibly diverse in the Triassic, but it wouldn't be a book or a film about dinosaurs. But in the Jurassic, it's different. The dinosaurs have survived, they're spreading around the world, they are growing to huge sizes, some of those groups, some of them are starting to experiment with flying, uh, and and there are many new species of dinosaurs. The dinosaur family tree is blossoming. So the crocs that survived that extinction now had to compete with the dinosaurs. Uh, And so they weren't on top anymore. And so some of the crocs did stay on land. There, There would be land crocs for quite a lot of time. But in the Jurassic, in the early Jurassic, this is when we properly see crocs begin their flirtation with water. At first, the shallow water. Now, there were some Triassic crocs that did kind of live in those uh, watery, semi-aquatic landshore interface environments. There were some, but in the Jurassic is when the more modern-style, proper crocs started to do this. The Triassic ones were more distant cousins, but now in the Jurassic, you have these more modern crocs. And they're going into the water. Again, at first in the shallows. Some of them became semi-aquatic, able to move between the land and the sea. But then some of those crocs in the Jurassic took it even further and ventured deeper into the water, so much so that they never went back to the land. They turned their limbs into flippers. They lost those dermal bones, those uh, plates of armor in their skin that Angeli talked about, a signature feature of crocs. They actually lost those things to streamline their bodies. They started to give live birth in the water. They may have even been warm-blooded. And really, these crocs, these are crocs that we call metrorhynchids, they looked like whales. If you would have seen one of them alive, it would have looked like some strange hybrid between a croc and a whale. Can I ask Phil, can you check that on? These were really thriving in the marine environments. There were
3: other other marine reptiles at the same time, but obviously dinosaurs were not one of those groups. So potentially this was a, a niche that they were able to invade and really do quite successfully. So they had quite a lot of features, as some of them still looked quite a little bit like crocs, as we might imagine today, but some of them started to look quite radically different. One thing about crocs is actually they, they, several different groups throughout their history, invaded the marine realm. So this was actually just the very first of these invasions, but this happened at least two more times uh, over the next sort of few tens of millions of years.
0: How patchy is the evidence that that we're talking about on this programme? This is
3: a, a bit of an odd one because the, the croc record is actually pretty good, both before and after that extinction event. But the terrestrial realm is not so good uh, in the immediate aftermath. So I think that is partly the problem there. Um, but, it, but in general terms, actually, their the fossil record is very good. Uh, we have good record pretty much from all continents throughout much of their evolutionary history. It obviously is a, a part of the problem, but I don't think it's sort of a, a major confounding factor as it might be perhaps for some other groups where we have sort of very bad fossil
0: records. Anjali, uh, you were talking about the skull. Can we come back to it? Because you were telling us in detail about what the skulls reveal. revealed.
4: Picking up on, on what I was saying in terms of how the skull relates to things like diet and um, the environment that the animal is living in and how it's kind of processing information about that environment, it can really help... Um, you know, filling in some of these transitions. Now, one of the things that has really, I think, transformed um, the study of Crocs in the last few years, really, is the new technologies that we can bring to bear on these questions, and so you know from bones like or from structures like the skull, we can use things like CT scanning and laser scanning, which we just really couldn 't really do ten, twenty years ago and we can not just look at the outside of the skull you know where we can kind of just look at the shape, but we can actually get inside the skull and start looking at how these different structures inside the skull are actually informing um, how the animal was moving around and what it was doing so um, you know, when thinking about this transition from the terrestrial to the marine realm, you know, you can look at structures like the inner ear, which is something that Steve's been involved with recently. And you can look at the inner ear, um, which is very different between a terrestrial organism or a terrestrial animal that's moving around in a kind of, you know, in an environment that is basically an air-based environment and moving into water. And what would, what, what would that show you? The inner ear, because it um, kind of navigates, uh, it, it kind of sets your balance, right, that. and how you move around in a, an environment. And so if you're moving around in a denser medium, like water, you're going to have, and also you have to do things like um, change the way you're hearing in that medium. So changing the medium that you're moving around with whether air or water will be reflected in structures like the inner ear. Thank you. Steve, I, I,
0: th- I know this is a difficult one because you've said as much earlier in the program. But could you speculate... Uh- I think the audience will be fascinated to know why did dinosaurs do so much better than crocs in the Jurassic, in your view? In the Jurassic, and then in the Cretaceous,
2: the next interval of time, this was the age of dinosaur dominance. There's no doubt about it. Uh, And there were a few things that dinosaurs were doing better than crocs, if we can use a a value judgment like that. Uh, But one of those things is the dinosaurs simply got bigger. You know, some of these long-necked dinosaurs uh, in the Brontosaurus or Diplodocus family, what we call the sauropod dinosaurs, and by the way, these are the dinosaurs that Phil is one of the world experts on. So really, Phil might have more to say, but what I'll say is they were big. They got really, really big. And in the Cretaceous, you had some that weighed as much as a, a Boeing 737 airplane. You know, no Crocs got to, to be that size. Um, Some of the meat-eating dinosaurs also got really big, not as big as an airplane, but things like T-Rex got to be the size of a proper double-decker bus. Uh, And the other thing that dinosaurs did in the Jurassic was some of them got small not all of them got big. Some of them got smaller. These were the raptor dinosaurs, like the Velociraptor group. And they developed wings, and they started to flap those wings, and they started to fly. And those were the dinosaurs that became birds, uh, as we talked about a few years ago on the Feathered Dinosaur Chat, when, when Mike Benton and Maria McNamara and I were chatting with you about that whole story. So crocs never started to fly. Um, so there were things that dinosaurs were able to do in the Jurassic— Maybe in part because of their intrinsic biology, you know, they got to be big, probably in part. Again, Phil would have a, a more informed opinion on me, but, but they're, they're very advanced lungs. They could take in more oxygen, these dinosaurs. They had air sacs that could lighten their body and cool their body and so on. Uh, so that helped them become bigger. And, and, and so that's undeniable that dinosaurs became this great majesty in the Jurassic and then in the Cretaceous. But I think we also have to remember that not only did, were crocs eclipsing the dinosaurs for the the first 50 million years, you know, back in the triassic. But then in the jurassic when dinosaurs survived and proliferated and became these marvelous animals that we all know, the crocs had to fit into those ecosystems, and they were very adaptable. They were very, you know, in an evolutionary sense, very innovative. And, and these whale crocs are a prime example of that. They went fully into the water. They left land completely behind. That's something that no dinosaur ever did. It's one of the few things that dinosaurs never did. There were never any whale dinosaurs. There's some birds, of course, that spend most of their time in the water. But other than that, there's nothing. And so we have to give crocs credit in that sense. It wasn't just merely the age of dinosaurs in the Jurassic and the Cretaceous, but the crocs were doing some spectacular things too.
0: Do you want to add to that, Phil? <clears throat> Steve's given you the green flag on that. Do you want to add to what's been said?
3: Steve's very right that actually the Triassic was sort of an early peak in croc evolution. But I think uh, the Jurassic and Cretaceous was really a second wave. They were in the shadows of the dinosaurs for certain. But actually, as well as going in the marine realm, crocs were going into lots of different environments and clearly sort of managing to carve out a niche or multiple niches for themselves. So we again have crocs that were probably able to run in quite upright sort of stances Crocs that were living in environments very different to today. So these are crocs that were living in quite semi-arid environments and, again, able to sort of run around quite quickly probably. We have crocs everywhere across the globe, getting into the Arctic as well. Um, And we even have uh, crocs that were almost certainly herbivorous as well, so going into all sorts of different kinds of dietary niches as well. So although they very much were not, you know, the poster boys of the Jurassic and Cretaceous, I think they were also having a pretty great time out there
0: as well.
4: Anjali, do you want to add to that? Certainly, um, the Cretaceous uh, is a really great time for crocs in many ways. Um, There are lots of uh, really, certainly my favorite group of of crocs, the Notosuchians, um, which are these really small, well, they vary in size, but some of them are quite small, uh, terrestrial, so they're entirely living on land. These are the ones that were probably plant eaters um, or specialist plant eaters, some of them. Um, And you find them, uh, you know, pretty widely distributed, certainly across the Southern uh, Hemisphere at this point, um, especially. And so, you know, you have these guys doing really, really well um, in the Cretaceous, first appearing in, in the Jurassic. Also in the Cretaceous is actually when, you know, the crocodiles that we would recognize today show up. And so in, in many ways, you know, what we think about as crocodiles is really a Cretaceous story, um, which makes it actually... In, even more interesting to think about what happens, you know, we've talked about a couple of mass extinctions and how they shaped croc evolution, right? With the, the end, you know, Permo-Triassic and then the Jurassic, uh, the Triassic-Jurassic. But of course, there's another big one coming up, um, which is the End Cretaceous. And when you think about, um, you know, the, the End Cretaceous mass extinction and what's happening with, with crocs in that, um, in that event, it's important to recognize that actually, well, we think about crocs where, we're very much the new kids on the block, um, kind of at that point in Earth history. Why have they always been cold blooded? And why does that matter? That's a good question. And I think, um, there are very few people that would claim to know the answer to that definitively. Um, they are now, certainly, uh, the ones that are around today. But I think there's a, there's a, um, open question as to whether that's something that evolved later and actually whether ancestrally, um, or certainly in the earlier crocs, warm-bloodedness may have evolved. Um, you know, as I said, uh, you know, and as we've been discussing kind of throughout, the, the crocs of the Mesozoic are nothing like the crocs of today um, until, you know, until they our modern crocs kind of show up in the late Cretaceous. And so, you know, they were living very different lifestyles. They were certainly living quite active lifestyles, right? Some of these things are looking like they were fast-running organisms. Well, it's it's rather hard to be a, a real fast-runner, Um and also something that for you know for extended periods of time, um, without you know some higher metabolism. <laughs>
1: Wenn Sie diesen Podcast hören, wissen Sie bereits, wie wichtig es ist, Fragen zu stellen. Bei Aramco helfen uns unsere Fragen, eine bessere Zukunft zu gestalten. Wie können wir die Kraftstoffe von morgen zur Verfügung stellen? Wie können wir die Ressourcen von heute zum Treibstoff für unsere gemeinsame Zukunft machen? Wie können wir eine Welt mit Energie versorgen, die sich keinen Ausfall leisten kann? Wie können wir Neugier säen und so Ideenreichtum ernten? Mehr zu Innovationen, die uns voranbringen? Aramco.com slash das Wie treibt uns an. Dein Podcast macht kurz Pause. Hatespeech dagegen hört nicht so einfach auf. Wer hat dir überhaupt erlaubt zu reden Schlampe? Verzieh dich in die Küche, bevor ich herausfinde wo du wohnst und dir-, dir persönlich Danke sage. Hör nicht auf die Hater. Du machst einen richtig guten Job und wir stehen alle hinter dir. Wir alle entscheiden, ob wir das Netz dem Hass überlassen. Werde Teil der Telekom Initiative gegen Hass im Netz und setze ein Zeichen.
0: Telecom. Steve, um, what was left of Crocs after the Cretaceous-Paleogene extinction? How did they rebound? They
2: did rebound, as they've always done. The extinction, I think a lot of us know the story, uh, the asteroid falls out of the sky, huge asteroid, six miles wide or so, um, smashes into the Earth, releases over a a billion nuclear bombs worth of energy and unleashes tsunamis and wildfires and earthquakes and...
0: This is about 60 million years ago, is that it? uh,
2: It's about 66 million years ago. Right at the end of the Cretaceous. And uh, and, and it's the most famous mass extinction. It's the most recent mass extinction also. But it's the most famous because that's when the dinosaurs died, except for birds. But, you know, T-Rex. T-Rex was there face down the asteroid. Triceratops was there. And they didn't make it through. Uh, But Crocs, believe it or not, this time were the survivors, one of the most uh, famous groups of survivors. So you kind of seen dinosaurs and crocs have had this waltz over their history where, you know, one rises, the other falls. Then there's an extinction, and then, you know, things are kind of reset. But this time, the crocs... Many of them made it through. The idea is that a lot of the crocs, as Anjali said, this is when we're seeing the more modern crocodilian-type crocs, the ones that are living in those semi-aquatic environments that are starting to look like the alligators and crocodiles that we know today, and the ones that are probably warm-blooded and lived a similar lifestyle. They were living in rivers and in lakes, largely. And those ecosystems seem like they were buffered against the extinction. In other words, they were like a refugia. You know, the horrible effects of the asteroid didn't hit those ecosystems as badly. And the reason why is probably because the asteroid kicks all this dust and grime into the atmosphere. It causes a, a global nuclear winter. The sun is basically blocked out, probably for several years plants uh, can't photosynthesize. There's, there's no or very little sunlight. So plants die, forests collapse, plant eaters don't have anything to eat, the meat eaters don't have anything to then eat, and and, and the ecosystems collapse like houses of cards. But the crocs and also turtles and a lot of different types of, of, of river fishes and lake fishes were not part of ecosystems that were based around forests or plants. They were in the water And they were in detritus-based ecosystems. So basically, the base of the food chain is not plants, but it's dead stuff falling into the water. Well, you can imagine if that's the kind of stuff you ate, and if you were part of those food webs, a mass die-off of plants was actually a pretty good time to be alive. So it seems like crocs, at least the more modern types of crocs, the crocs and alligators that we're familiar with, they had that winning lottery ticket. Really by dumb luck, really. And, and those environments helped them survive. And so they did survive. And then, as usual, after the extinction, they rediversified yet again. As well as... So everything Steve said is entirely uh, correct
3: in terms of what we currently think. But there was also other crocs that also survived that mass extinction as well. And this actually sort of bears out a lot of what we sort of think about why some groups do survive and some go extinct. So, for instance, Anjali mentioned a group of crocs called Notosuchians before which were much more terrestrial than most of the other crocs. And actually, many of those did go extinct at the the mass extinction. But then there was also marine crocs that did pass through. This is a different group of marine crocs. And we think that they maybe survived because they were actually living in quite a wide range of environments. So also living in sort of estuarine and coastal environments, as well as fully marine. So it does seem to be some sort of signal that essentially groups that were either living in sort of riverine environments or that were sort of living in quite a range of environments also did very well. How does the diversity of crocs today compare with what went before? Today, there is something like 25 species of crocs. Uh, So most of these belong to the genus Crocodilus, which includes the Nile crocodile and a saltwater crocodile. Uh, And then a large amount of them belong to alligator and its close relative, the caiman. And then there are a couple of gyrules. Uh, So I I said there's probably 25 because we're still trying to work out whether some of these species actually represent multiple species. Some of them look identical to one another, but their DNA shows that they're actually quite distinctive. So the numbers have been sort of gradually going up over the last 10 years. Uh, Very gradually, we've gone from something like 22 or 23 to around 25 or maybe up to 27. But that might change a little bit more in the future.
0: And how many were there before? Over their entire
3: history... Uh, we can recognise something like over 500 uh, species of croc, but that is over a 250 million year period. So in the past, there's probably been times where diversity has been greater than today. But I think the key rather than sort of whether there are you know, more or less than 25 species is the the breadth of diversity. So at those times in the past, there were lots and lots of different types of crocs around. Thank you.
0: Anjuli, Crocodiles and alligators are sometimes described even today as living fossils. Do you go along with
4: that? Uh, not at all. No, I think it's a, a a terrible term um to assign to this group um for lots of reasons. I think you know, kind of picking up on, on Phil's point about the the breadth of uh, crocs in the past, you know, they have this immense diversity and in, in, you know, if we just think about we recently measured this, so, you know, there's about if we look at just the diversity of their skull shapes, today's crocs Probably represent, I don't know, a quarter to a third of the variety of forms that they were in the past. And the term living fossil would suggest that they've always been kind of the same as they are today. But of course, the, the crocs that are around today are kind of the newest kind of croc that's around. And then if we look at the Mesozoic, there was this immense diversity of different kinds of crocs. And so if anything, you know, if if crocs were today were even remotely representative of their fossil record, they would be hugely diverse. So I think, you know, calling them a living fossil doesn't do justice to them in the past, but it also doesn't do justice to how they are evolving today. And so actually, even though crocs, you know, largely, you know, with some exceptions with the marine crocs that do make it through uh, the KPG mass extinction. You know, even though most of them today are, are largely semi-aquatic um, kind of, you know, carnivorous uh, fish-eating, you know, forms, they actually still are evolving quite rapidly, and we can actually do this using new methods. We can um, we can measure how fast uh, evolution has been happening in the crocs over the last couple hundred millions of years. And actually, if we look at the modern uh, radiation, the living crocs, especially ones in areas like um, uh, like the uh, Indo-Pacific, those are actually evolving at a really fast rate of evolution. Actually, kind of similar to the rates we might have seen in terms of you know um, generating new shapes and things that we might have seen uh, you know in the Triassic and in the Jurassic. The difference today is that they're kind of reinventing the same things over and over. So they're kind of re-evolving the same sort of semi-aquatic skull shapes and and niches. So I don't think the term living fossil applies for lots of reasons. I think it's also, I, I do think it generally suggests that they have had a boring evolutionary history. And of course, if we were going to call every group of organisms that today is only represented by a, a small number of species compared to, say, a past um, more diverse group of species, then we would also say horses and hyenas or even humans are living fossils, right? Because we certainly had more diversity in the past than we do today.
0: Thank you. Steve, um, when you look across this amazing timescale you've been throwing around between you, how do you see the future for crocs in evolutionary terms? Is it possible to map it out, as it were? Crocs are, are down,
2: you know, may, maybe it's their lowest ebb ever. As Phil says, it's hard to tell for sure in the fossil record over time. Is 25 species the lowest they've ever been Have there been times where are more or less? I mean, the fossil record's so biased, it's hard to tell. But as Angelina and Phil have been, you know, explaining, there, there has been such a breadth of diversity in the past in terms of size and diet and behavior. We don't have that now. Most of the crocs that are with us are pretty much the same. They look very similar. They live in similar tropical, subtropical, near shore environments. uh, And they are vulnerable. Those environments are very susceptible to climate change, especially sea level rises, temperature changes. So these things could be very problematic. Some croc species today are heavily endangered. So I don't want to look into the future and and, and predict anything. It's a hard thing to, you know, paleontologists, we're always looking back and we want to inform uh, on the present and the future. But but if, if I... The one thing I would say is that if we've learned anything from the fossil record, it's not to count the Crocs out. Because as we've seen for over 250 million years, they have been survivors. They've faced two terrible mass extinctions each time they were knocked down to the mat. uh, But they've gotten back up. And they've not just survived, but they've re-diversified. They've invaded new niches. They've learned new evolutionary tricks. So I would not bet against the Crocs.
0: Phil, are uh, there new techniques for looking at croc
3: evolution? Both Angela and Steve have mentioned these, and, and both of them are doing this kind of work looking at crocs and other groups. We're really using CT uh, scans to kind of look inside the croc skull in particular and try to understand aspects relating to uh, hearing, uh, how their brains have evolved, all these kind of things that we can start to understand a lot more about these animals. But there's lots of other aspects too, we're gradually starting to build a much more complete understanding of their family tree, so how they were evolved with one another. And that kind of information is really important for for actually addressing lots of the kind of questions uh, that we've been talking about today. And one thing that I think is particularly exciting is there was a a relatively recent publication which uh, managed to produce uh, ancient DNA for a relatively recently extinct croc species. This was a species of croc that was living on Madagascar until probably just about 1,000 years ago, probably uh, driven to extinction by ourselves. Uh, and so those authors were actually able to extract DNA from extinct species. And it's quite possible there are other crocs that only went extinct uh, in sort of modern human times. So it'd be really exciting to actually be able to produce ancient DNA from those species and really build this amazing picture of some of these extinct species that probably just 10 years ago, we would never have dreamed of being able to actually reconstruct.
4: One thing I think Phil is also being being humble here because one of the other really interesting things that people are doing with crocs and their fossil record that they really haven't been able to to do until relatively recently is actually look at climate and how climate has actually impacted uh, croc evolution across you know hundreds of millions of years, and that's because of better understanding about how climate has changed in the past and also just better um, better methods to model how species respond. And that's, that's something that I think will really transform our understanding of what's been driving their evolution. Thank
0: you. Could you give us some idea of the great unanswered questions about croc evolution and how they might be answered?
4: One of the things that um, I think bothers me a, a lot about the end-Cretaceous mass extinction and, and crocodile um, diversification or croc diversification afterwards is why when we see through these multiple kind of extinction events and changes in the Mesozoic, they always reinvade these marine niches. They reinvade these terrestrial niches. Um, and yet, even though, you know, terrestrial crocs were, were doing well until the very end of the Cretaceous, and you know, we certainly find them in, in our field sites right before the Cretaceous mass extinction, and yet they never reinvade those niches. And, you know, it's been 66 million years now, I and mean, they've had time. Um, so why do we never see that same diversification that we saw over and over again in the Mesozoic reappearing the Cetozoic? Is it just competition with with mammals? Is it competition with uh, with other things in the ocean? Well, mammals largely in the ocean, also, or is it that there's some sort of intrinsic kind of developmental constraints or something like that that is that has arisen in the in the living lineages that just can't kind of recapture that sort of uh, variation. Um, I don't know. But that is certainly, I think, one of the big questions with crocs. And I hope Steve is right that there's more surprises in store from the croc lineage because I personally would love a terrestrial kind of cat-sized croc.
3: The other thing we can think about with that mass extinction is that crocs do fairly well across that boundary. And dinosaurs are almost entirely wiped out with just some birds. Even most birds went extinct to that mass extinction. But today we have 25 species of crocs and something like 11,000 species of birds. So really trying to understand why those, those are the two closest living representatives of that long sort of radiation of crocs and dinosaurs. Why is one group uh, hyper diverse and why is one group
2: potentially on the brink of extinction? Finally, Steve? For me, uh, there's three things I'll just quickly highlight that get me really excited. And I think these are the questions that, uh, you know, young paleontology enthusiasts might want to think about. Because uh, if you can answer these, uh, that would be fantastic. I mean, the first is at the end of the Triassic when Pangaea split and the crocs are decimated, but the dinosaurs survive largely at extinction. why? was that? And secondly, we touched on it, Angeli touched on it here, were crocs warm-blooded in the past? And if so, how did they compare to birds and mammals? And then why did they lose that warm-bloodedness today? And the third thing, maybe this seems like something completely random, but did some of these fossil crocs have feathers? And we know dinosaurs had feathers. We know that pterosaurs, pterodactyls, the closest living, uh, the closest, not living, but the closest relatives to dinosaurs had feathery type structures. The next branch on the family tree is the croc, So did some of these fossil crocs have feathery structures in their skin?
0: Well, thank you all very much. And that was terrific. Thank you, Steve Brissati, Phil Mannion, and Anjali Goswami. And to our studio engineer, Duncan Hannant, next week. It's Herodotus, known as the father of history for his account of the wars between Greece and Persia. Thank you for listening.
1: And the In Our Time podcast gets some extra time now with a few minutes of bonus material from
0: Melvin and his guests. What didn't you have time to say that you would like to have said? Who wants to start off?
4: I have one thing actually that occurred to me after I I finished the last question, actually, which was... Kind of along the lines of why crocs never regain their diversity, I wonder if it's something about being semi-aquatic. semi And this leads into Phil's question about why do they never get the kind of hyper-diversity of birds. I often wonder, and also this comes up with other groups, whether being semi-aquatic and kind of having to live between two worlds stops you specializing for either of them and also makes you kind of less competitive in either of them. And so that just kind of limits your evolutionary capacity by being, you know, living this kind of double life of a, of a, of a croc as opposed to just being a terrestrial mammal or, a you know, an oceanic whale or something. Well, I think, uh, you know,
2: Angela raised a, a good point towards the end um, about mammals. Uh, you know, Angelia is one of the great, world experts on mammals and you know phil and i are starting to study mammals a little bit more uh, in our work um but but it, you know when the dinosaurs go extinct other than birds uh you know, mammals are the group that took over. That's the story we always tell. And you know, of course, mammals did. They they diversified. Uh, they started to grow to really big sizes, much bigger than they ever got when they were living alongside the dinosaurs and the more primitive crocs earlier on. Um, but you know, the crocs did diversify a bit as well afterwards. And there, even after the dinosaur extinction, there there were some crocs that did still live on the land, um, at least for another. 15 million years or so, maybe even more. I'd have to check the numbers. But there was a group called the Pristachampsids, and these were crocs that had hooves. I mean, they they were really fast runners. You know, why did those things go extinct? Um, Was it because there were mammals with hooves uh, that really became specialized for running that kind of, you know, forced them out? Or were they living, were they kind of cold-blooded or not quite fully warm-blooded, And they were living in a world that was much warmer, Uh, and as the world started to cool and ice sheets started to form, you know, eventually culminating in in the Ice Ages, you know, could they not survive in that kind of world as much? Phil probably has, again, a much more informed opinion than me there. But I, I just find it interesting that even after the dinosaur extinction, you get this new wave of diversification. It's not like all the crocs are just still in the water uh, or in the the semi-aquatic environments, but you still had some on land, but they kind of just wasted away over time, leaving this pittance today.
3: Uh, Yeah, I I guess in the climate aspect, um, as we've touched upon this a few times, we we know very much that crocs today have this very kind of latitudinally restricted range, so living in the subtropics, roughly sort of 25 degrees either side of the equator. But throughout much of the early parts of evolutionary history, they were pretty much everywhere. Uh, and so right up to about 50 million years ago, we know they were living up in the Arctic, almost certainly probably getting into Antarctica at times. And pretty much the entire story of their evolution seems to track uh, the change in climate to the globe. So during much of the interval we've been talking about, the Triassic, the Jurassic, the Cretaceous, the world was just much warmer than it is today. Uh, And that that included going up to the poles. So at times in the Cretaceous uh, and in the early parts after Cretaceous, for instance, there was no ice at the poles. And so these were probably sort of conditions much closer to almost what we think of the modern tropics getting into these high latitudes. So crocs were really thriving at those times. But as the Earth started to cool, particularly around about sort of Thirty million years ago onwards, the the range of crocs really shrank. And so this might also be sort of a key aspect of their kind of reduction in numbers of species, because essentially they had much smaller amount of the earth to inhabit. And so we do really seem to see that their diversity does seem to tie in with how climate has changed across the globe. And probably, you know, Periods of warmth has allowed crocs to really thrive, but it's gotten to this colder world. It's really kind of stopped crocs really doing as well as they could do. And definitely, I think sort of probably, I think Angela is probably right. They probably were just limited uh, somehow to not being able to sort of take advantage of other niches. We don't find any crocs living in trees. We definitely don't find any of them flying. So they really seem to have missed out on a lot of uh, habitats and niches that lots of other species just took advantage
4: of. So, Phil, can I ask, you know, given what you were just saying, um, do you think then, given how crocs do seem to track climate, that, you know, the next hundred years is going to be, you know, the, the, the rise of crocs again?
3: I think if, if we weren't here, in which case, obviously, we wouldn't have uh, a warming world. Uh, but if we weren't here, I think crocs would actually do probably quite well. Um, we generally see the diversity of most groups seems to do better during warmer intervals, But it's all the other associated aspects that come with changing climate. It's all the loss of habitat, that degradation, that really is problematic for crocs. And also, ultimately, these species, you know, in a a normal warming world without humans around, would probably move polewards. They would disperse into other areas. But obviously, those areas are going to be towns and cities. Uh, There's no way that crocs are going to be allowed to sort of disperse into those Mm -hmm. areas. So I think... Global warming and and all the other aspects that come with climate change are going to be pretty devastating for for most crocs. There's a, there's a few species of crocs that are doing very well and will probably flourish, uh, but we probably we definitely do face sort of the extinction of several species. Steve mentioned before that several of them are uh, a high extinction risk, and several species are down to the last fewer than a thousand individuals in the wild, and their habitats have greatly shrank. These include in lots of different parts of the world in China. Uh, but also in parts of Central America too. So there's several species of that 25 group that is really at danger. And some of those species are really the last remnants of the croc radiation. So for instance, there's a very good chance we will lose the gharials uh, over the next 100 years because of things like climate change.
4: I think you raise a really good point because sometimes you know when we think about uh, pe- you know, previous periods of of, of you know warm intervals, um, like the Miocene, right, is a is a classic one that's between five to twenty million years ago, and it was this period that you know the Earth is unlike the Triassic world where you have you know Pangaea and this supercontinent. Um, you know, after the Cretaceous, the, the world starts to look a lot more like it does today in terms of where the continents are, and certainly in the Miocene, you're basically looking at the the modern world in terms of how the continents are organized. But it is a few degrees hotter than it is today. And so in some ways, it's a really good model for what might be happening. Um, and of course, when we think about the Miocene and croc diversity, there's actually a huge diversity of crocs in the Miocene, really huge things, actually, in, in um, especially in South America, you know, in, in the kind of tropics. You get these, you know, I think some of them are 10 meters long, right? Perosaurus is about um, 10 meters long. So you have these massive crocs that I personally don't really want to see re-evolve. Um, but of course, you know, the problem with only pred- basing our predictions on the climate of the past is that there's always the, the human factor. And that's not going to, that's going to kind of throw everything out of whack as it usually does.
0: Phil, um, um, can I ask you, the throwing around of these 250 million years ago, 200 million years ago, and so on and so forth, are you any nearer getting more precise in these datings? i think it's it 's a balance, obviously
3: to some extent when we 're trying to explain these patterns, we often want to to round up to a to a number that sounds a bit more you know easy to digest almost, but for, for some of them, we have sort of very precise dates. I mean we know that essentially pretty much within about ten thousand years exactly when that asteroid struck the earth, for instance, the date is really sort of well calibrated. Uh, we have fossils that go right up to that boundary, so we know that they Are around about 66.001 million years old, or something like that. So often we can be quite precise. Other times, though, we really are sort of only able to assign a particular fossil to, say, like a a five million year period because we lack that information. It's mainly because we're not actually able to date the fossils themselves. We're dating the rocks that they're in. And for that to be possible, we need certain things to be preserved in those rocks, Uh, either something like uh, volcanic beds, maybe above and below, uh, which we can date properly, or sometimes uh, things like zircon crystals that are in the rocks. But without this, often we are unable to date these things to anything more than say within a million or a few million year period.
4: I think the other part of that also is that it's not just a problem with dating the rocks that the fossils are in, but remembering that, that when we find fossils and we can identify them, that is, you know. Really, the the minimum age they evolved. We can't. We don't know how much of the record bef- of their um, you know lifespan or the the lifespan of that lineage um, beforehand. We're missing, and so you know when we're trying to date um, fossil uh, occurrences to precise um, environmental effects, we have to build in a little bit of uncertainty in terms of when that thing actually showed up. So if we have a fossil that is showing up at you know fifty million years ago are we sure, how precise can we be that it wasn't around but we don't have fossils for it, you know, 55 million years ago or 52 million years ago? So there's lots of really complex models to try and account for that uncertainty, but really throughout the process we have lots of different kinds of uncertainty, and ideally what will happen is that we run lots and lots of different models that, that try to estimate all this uncertainty and we find out that our results are really kind of robust regardless of what we don't know.
0: Thank you all very much. That really was fascinating. In Our Time
1: with Melvin Bragg is produced by Simon Tillotson.
0: I saw a footprint.
3: I'm Andrew Benfield, and I'm obsessed with the Yeti. The face looks like some kind of monkey. The idea of a Yeti-like creature has been around for centuries, but could it be real? In Yeti, a new 10-part series from BBC Radio 4, I'm going to try to find out. I'll be joined by a good friend. You said we were going for a short walk across the valley. I'm Richard Horsey. This search isn't going to be easy. They have the ability to disappear. Are we chasing phantoms? Yeti, Jesus, you'll never find them. But in this series, we think we might. Listen to Yeti on BBC Sounds. What's What's there?
1: Wenn Sie diesen Podcast hören, wissen Sie bereits, wie wichtig es ist, Fragen zu stellen. Bei Aramco helfen uns unsere Fragen, eine bessere Zukunft zu gestalten. Wie können wir die Kraftstoffe von morgen zur Verfügung stellen? Wie können wir die Ressourcen von heute zum Treibstoff für unsere gemeinsame Zukunft machen? Wie können wir eine Welt mit Energie versorgen, die sich keinen Ausfall leisten kann? Wie können wir Neugier säen und so Ideenreichtum ernten? Mehr zu Innovationen, die uns voranbringen? Aramco.com slash das Wie treibt uns an
3: step back in time with me tristan hughes on the ancients from history hit as we journey to civilizations long gone twice a week we release brand new episodes exploring our distant past unravel the enigma of stonehenge's standing stones walk the ash-covered streets of pompeii and unlock the secrets of the maya Discover stories lost to history and tales that shaped our world only on the Ancients from History hit. Listen and follow wherever you get your podcasts.